Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. It is so good to be here with you guys. If we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the site pastor at our Chapel Segan location, so I don't get to be over here as often anymore, but Kevin is with the grandbabies, which means he's not thinking about any of us this weekend. So I took the opportunity to, to come and, uh, and be back. And I, I gotta say, it's good to be here. I miss you guys. Uh, my wife has been going to this location for, for 20 years, my, myself for 12 years, and now being out at Segan. We love all that God is doing out there. It's been such a great thing, but man, to be back with you guys and some of you college students in the room, uh, it's it's a joy. Uh, so if you're new at the chapel, welcome. Kevin, who is normally here, is, is the one that's out of town. Um, but we are continuing in this weekend uh, that we call our Live Sent weekend. Now you heard from Wendy, you heard from Aaron, but we are, uh, had our Live Sent conference Friday and Saturday. And if you were there, I hope you were as impacted as I was by it. Our Live Sent conference is a once a year opportunity for us to learn about a different aspect of what it means to live sent. One of the convictions and values of this church is everyone who follows Jesus God has intentionally and specifically sent us to the places that we are. Where you live and where you work and where you play is not an accident. God sent you there to be used by him for his glory. And so every year we, we talk about a different aspect of that. And this year we talked about prayer. We've got a pretty audacious vision at this church. And if you've been around, you've heard us talking about it then the next 10 years, we would maximize our growth capacity in order to maximize our sending capacity. We are asking God to allow this church to see thousands of people in this city and on this campus come to know Jesus. Not just through people coming into the building, but through all of us living sent where God has placed us. And we're asking God to allow us to raise up, care for, equip, send out hundreds of men and women and families around the country and around the world into ministry. And the reality is that mission, that vision is not possible to do on our own. You can't put together a strategy for that to happen. And it needs to be an act of God. And so we need to pray. And so if you missed the Live Sent Conference, let me encourage you to go back and watch the messages that we recorded and, and be a part of what we're doing. Because one of the things we're all invited into is to pray the things that God has given this church to do into existence, leaning into him as being dependent on him for what he's asked us to do. Now, Live Sent Identity, we talk about it every year at the Live Sent Conference, but it also encompasses so much of what we do around here. And it's actually the very reason why we've been going through Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is not just the introduction to the Bible, but it's the very introduction to everything that God wants us to know. It's the beginning foundational elements of everything that God wants us to know about him, about ourself, about purpose, about meaning, about truth, everything in order to interpret the scriptures, to look at all of history, to know what God is doing, we find in Genesis 1 through 11. We also find sin enter the world in Genesis 1 through 11. And we see that everything has been tarnished. 
Now in the church today, I think we've got a pretty pitiful view of sin because we've begun to think about sin as just this list of bad things that we're not supposed to do. But the reality is sin has come in and touched every part of creation. Every part of the human experience has been upended, has been tarnished by sin. It corrodes everything it touches and it moves us farther away from God and more towards ourself. That is what sin does. And we live in this cultural moment of being in the world and not of the world like Kevin talked about last week. And in order to do that, we need to have the right set of lenses, the right glasses that we look through in order to follow God in this cultural moment. But today on this Live Sent weekend, I want to take a pause from Genesis and I want to turn over to the New Testament and look at two critical verses in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Genesis is all about giving us or letting us know how to look at the world the way that God does. But what we're going to see today is what needs to happen in our minds in order to see the world the way God does. We can't just choose to pick up a different set of glasses and change the way that we think to see the world the way that God does. We need help. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, we're going to find that help. So pray with me as we dive in. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. And we come today and we ask that you would allow our ears and our hearts and our minds to be ready to receive from you. Not from me, because if what we've come here to do is just participate in the service and listen to what I have to say, we're wasting our time. We need to encounter your word. We need to be changed by you. So if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. If there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, I invite you to come and speak so that we can have an encounter with Jesus today and that we would be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me start with this question. Based on everything that you know about God, based on all the things that you know about the character of God, what is the reasonable way to respond to him? Based on everything you know, what is logical? What is appropriate? What is the the proper way to come and interact with God, to respond to him? Well, Paul's answer to that question is what we find in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Paul's answer to what is reasonable in responding to God is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to offer our bodies on the altar, as it were. That word that is translated true and proper is where we get our English word logical from. So I think a better translation is that it's reasonable. 
The reasonable way, the logical way, the appropriate way that we respond to God is by offering our bodies as a sacrifice. That seems kind of intense, doesn't it? Maybe a little radical that we would lay ourselves on an altar in front of God as our reasonable worship. So what exactly does that mean? Well, Paul had 11 chapters to be able to unpack for us his argument. Romans 1 through 11 lead up to all the things that we need to know, all the things that we need to believe about God in order to start talking about what we should do in response. Now, I don't have to go back and unpack for us those 11 chapters because Paul gives us a very concise summary of the entire first 11 chapters of Romans when he says, in view of God's mercy. Romans 1 through 11 is Paul painting a picture, a a vista of God's mercy that we would stare at, meditate on, and enjoy the mercy of God, the things that God has done. Now, mercy is a churchy word that means not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. It's a definition of mercy. So if you were to come up to me and punch me in the face, and I didn't punch you in the face, I would be showing you mercy. If you stole a car and got caught and the judge gave you community service instead of throwing you in jail, you would have been shown mercy. And Paul says, for those that follow Jesus, we've been shown mercy. In in Romans 6, verse 23, he says this, the wages of sin is death. Anyone in this world that has ever sinned, which is everyone who's ever existed except for Jesus, what we have earned from that is death, is separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That but is one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. Because it shows us that we can be reconciled to God. But it's also one of the most unfair things in this world. I've talked to a lot of people in different churches that often talk about things that are not fair. Suffering or or persecution or illness or or people having a rough life, all of these types of things. But from a biblical perspective, the only thing that's unfair is that any human can be reconciled to God. Because that's not what we deserve. What we deserve is to be separated from God. It is not fair. The wages that we have earned for the sin in our life is eternal punishment in hell apart from God. This is what we have earned. This is what we deserve. 
And Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Romans talking about why that's the case and what the alternative is. That through Jesus and believing that he has taken the punishment, that he has taken the wrath of God, we can actually know and be reconciled to God. That is the gift that he has given us. And so Paul starts off Romans 12 with that therefore. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, therefore staring at the mercies of God, which is one of the best things that we can do with our lives, is stare at the mercies of God. To allow our minds and our eyes to be drawn to look at and meditate on and enjoy the things that God has done because we didn't earn it. It is completely an act of love and grace from him. And so Paul starts Romans 12 with this hinge point to move from what do we need to believe to what do we need to do. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 is not just a hinge point in the letter. It's also a hinge point in our own minds and hearts. Romans 12, 1 and 2 shows us what we are to do in response. And before we do any good things, before we do any churchy things, any loving things, any serving things, all the things that Paul's about to talk about, he gives us one thing that we're to do first. And this is the first point on our outline. He says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. In view of what God has done, this is our reasonable act of worship. Now, sacrifice is the language of worship in the Old Testament. Before Jesus came on the scene to die the death that we deserved, in order to come to God, in order to worship God, you had to actually bring an animal sacrifice. And that animal, when it was killed, its blood would cover temporarily our sins. And the reason that it was worship is because the people who were bringing these sacrifices they recognize I have sinned before God and I'm accepting his solution. I'm allowing myself to come to God the way that he has allowed me to come. And then Jesus came. And when John the Baptist saw him, he said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is why Jesus' death was so significant. Because for thousands of years, people had to come to the priest over and over and over and over and over again, bringing another animal sacrifice. But when Jesus came, he fully covered and fully satisfied the sacrifice that was needed to be brought. But that brings up a question in my mind. If that's the case, if Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient, then why is Paul saying, offer yourselves as a sacrifice? If Jesus' death already took care of this, then why do we need to sacrifice anything? Well, the apostle Peter helps us with this. He wrote a couple letters to the church that was scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he said this in 1 Peter 1, chapter 2. He says, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't bring ourselves as a sacrifice because we are adequate and necessary sacrifices. 
We bring our whole selves to God because Jesus is inadequate and necessary sacrifice. What we bring, we bring through Jesus. So what Paul and Peter are describing here is worship. And I think we've gotten confused often at what worship means. When we come to church, when we sing songs, when we give money, when we read our Bible, that is not worship. Those are acts of worship. But worship is sacrifice. Worship is giving our whole selves to God because we've recognized that God is worthier than anything else that I can give my life to. It's saying there's no other anything in this universe for me to give myself over to other than God. He is worthy. So here I am. Sin is also worship. It's not worship of God. It's worship of self. Sin says, there is no one worthier than me. And so I'm going to live my life the way that I want and do what feels good. So what Paul is saying here is we've seen God's mercy. We know what he's done. We know that we have no other chance without him. And so we bring our whole selves to him who is worthy. That is what worship is. Offering our bodies to God as a living sacrifice kind of seems like an intense radical form of Christianity, like it's this higher echelon of extra spirituality or something like that. But giving ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is not special or extra Christianity. It's just plain, boring, simple Christianity. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. But I think this is why it's often hard to grasp that because we've forgotten or we don't understand a reality. You will offer your body on an altar. You will offer yourself on an altar. Now you have a choice over what altar that's going to be. It might be the altar of family where you say, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure my family has what they need no matter the cost. It could be the altar of money and success for the rest of your life, having the mantra, just a little more. It could be the altar of reputation and popularity that I'm going to do anything it takes to maintain a vision of what people have of me, this image that I want to portray. It could be the altar of legacy, doing everything that you possibly can so that people remember you after you die. There are countless altars that you can give yourself to. And the Bible has a word for the altars that we lay ourselves on that are not Jesus. It's the word idol. It's where we get our word idolatry. 
Now, when we think of idol worship in Western or in American churches, we tend to think of scantily clad jungle folk bowing down to statues. But when the Bible talks about idols, it talks about the things that, that we can't stop thinking about. The things that we wake up thinking about and the things that we go to bed thinking about the things that we will do anything to achieve or receive, those things that we have come to the conclusion that if we can just get that thing, then I'll be worthy of love. Then my life will matter. That's how the Bible talks about idols. What altar are you tempted to lay your life down on? What idol does your heart not want to let go of that you don't want to give up control over? Since we're in a small group full of great friends, I'll tell you mine. It's productivity in my schedule. This is probably what has caused the most fights in my marriage because I'm not willing to give this up. I have come to find identity over being able to check off my to-do list, over accomplishing the things that are in front of me. And when something doesn't go according to plan or I lose 10 minutes of sleep or something doesn't go the way that it's supposed to go, I get angry and I get anxious. It's an idol. That's me worshiping at the altar of a false God. So what about you? What altar are you tempted to lay yourself down on? It's important to know because here's the thing about idols. Idols cannot be torn down. They can only be replaced. Idols cannot be torn down. They can only be replaced because we were made to worship something. We were made to lay our lives down for something. And so Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your proper worship. There's a problem with living sacrifices. They're still alive, so they tend to crawl off the altar. Maybe you've had that experience, right? You, you listen to a great sermon. You, you have a great time of worship. You read something in the Bible that just really speaks to you, and you get all jacked up, and you're like, I am ready. Like, sin is not going to touch me. I'm going to walk with Jesus. This is going to be awesome. I'm not going to sin for the rest of my life. And then 30 minutes later, you find yourself cussing out somebody on the interstate. Or is that just me? We still find ourselves in this world and asked by God not to be in it. Or we're in it, but not of it. We have to live in this tension of the already and the not yet, of being saved and continually being saved, of waiting for Jesus to come back. 
So what does it actually look like to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, I, I think Paul gives us the way to think about this in the very next verse. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In this verse, there are three handlebars that I think are helpful for us knowing what does it look like to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And, and the first, and it's the next point on your outline, is a living sacrifice is not conformed to this world. Being conformed to this world is what naturally happens when we desire to follow Jesus, but we are in this world without recognizing the things that are coming in and shaping us. We begin to think like the world. We begin to value the things the world values. We begin to do the things the world does without even thinking about it, without even recognizing what we're doing. And we're all tempted to conform to the world because it is the environment that we find ourselves in every minute of every day. Like a fish that doesn't realize that it's in water because that's all it knows. We begin to look like and sound like and think like the world. It's what happens unintentionally. Now, last week, Kevin gave you some questions, if you were here, to evaluate the ways that you're naturally conformed to the world or the ways that the world has begun discipling you, shaping you. But I want to repeat one of those questions because I think it constantly needs to be in front of us. And the question is, what have you received from the world unintentionally? What are the things that you've allowed to make up the way you think and the things you do and the things you value without running it through a biblical framework? This happens to all of us. Now, the grammar in the original language is a little complicated about how this happens. So to be conformed can mean one of three things. It can either mean that you are being conformed and you don't realize it. It could mean that you're being conformed. You do realize it. You just don't care. Or it could mean that you are participating in your conformity. But whichever one it means, what Paul is doing here is warning us that what will happen if we are not intentional is that we will be conformed to this world. You can wander into conformity, but you can't wander out. You can wander into conformity, but you can't wander out. And so if we can't wander out, then, then what are we supposed to do? we we'll move to our second handlebar. A living sacrifice is transformed by the renewing of their minds. Now, whenever I'm at the airport, I always utilize the moving sidewalk, right? The moving sidewalk has lots of rules around it, but it has, there's a few different ways to utilize it, right? For some people, they use it as a place to just kind of sit and, and rest, and they're still moving in, in the right direction. For me, I see those and I say, oh, that's a way to get where I'm going faster. Remember, my idol is productivity. One of the ways that God has used in my life to humble me from that is he happened to have given me a, a wife that walks very deliberately. I would say slowly, but properly is, is, is deliberately. So I've been 
humbled through that, but that's what I do. I step on the moving sidewalk and and I'm going to get to where I'm going faster. If you're 12 and under, the proper way to use the walking sidewalk is to run the opposite direction, right? If you're at the airport, there's always going to be somebody who's running in the opposite direction. Well, walking against the flow of the moving sidewalk is how I like to think about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because everything from the outside world, everything from the external world is going to try to conform us to the world. So as we walk through life trying to move towards godliness, we will be going against the grain. If we stand still, we will be conformed. If we stand still, we will go the opposite direction. As we intentionally live and go against the grain is how we're talking about being transformed. And Paul's definition of laying yourself as a living sacrifice is having our minds renewed. Having our minds renewed is what Paul means by laying ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, that seems strange to us because when we think of bodies, we think of only what we can see. We think of only the physical nature of our bodies. But when the Bible talks about bodies, it talks about not just what we look like, but what our bodies do. So when we think about that verse, we picture this this body laying on an altar almost as like it's having some type of physical punishment. But what Paul is saying is not that we are laying on the altar as a punishment, not that we're laying on the altar to pay for our sin because Jesus has already done that. We're laying ourselves on the altar because we need to change. We have been tarnished by sin and we need to be changed so that we stop living out of our sin and our flesh and our desires and start living out of our allegiance to Jesus. And the path to change comes through the mind. But here we find ourselves with another problem. Because the way the world around us tends to think about changing our minds is through progress and innovation. We'll say things like, we need more access to information, or we need better education, or we need better programs, and as if that's the problem to change our minds. But from a biblical perspective, the problem with our minds is our minds are fallen. Our minds have been touched and tarnished and upended by sin. Our minds are bent on not seeing God as infinitely worthy of praise. And so in order for our minds to be renewed, we need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So how do we put ourselves in a position to have our minds renewed? A better way to ask that question is, how does God through the Holy Spirit renew our minds? And that's an important distinction because there's actually only one active verb, one active command in these verses. When he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, that's the only thing he's telling us to do. The other verbs are are passive. Be conformed, be transformed are things that happen to us. So it's God that transforms us. What we do is offer our bodies. So what exactly does that process look like? 
Well, pastor and author John Piper gives us a helpful framework for the way that this can look. He says that the Holy Spirit works on us in two different directions, from the outside in and the inside out. So from the outside in, we need to have Jesus exalting truth make up a big part of our external world. We need God's truth coming at us. And this is why we encourage you to be reading your Bibles. And if you don't have a plan, to pick up the Chapel Bible reading plan. This is why we encourage you to come to church on Sundays. This is why we encourage you to be in a community group. Not because we need you to do these things. Not because God needs you to do these things for you to be saved but because this is how God renews our minds, that we put ourselves in positions to have Jesus exalting truth as a part of our external world. But it also needs to happen from the inside out, where we recognize, man, my mind really is fallen. My eyes are foggy. My heart is corrupt. I will not choose these things on my own. So God, would you humble me? Would you transform me? Would you change me? Because apart from you, I can't do the things you've asked me to do. And so God comes from the outside in, the inside out, and transforms us by the renewing of our minds. And then Paul finishes the verse says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, what, we, what I have here on our outline is a living sacrifice sees the world the way God does. Now, if I wanted to stay closer to the text, I could have said a living sacrifice knows God's will. That would have been true. But in my experience in talking to people over the last decade is that when a conversation about God's will comes up, we reveal that we don't always have a great understanding of what God's will is and how we're supposed to interact with it. Often we have the conversation around God's will with questions like, I wonder what God's will for my life is. What's God's will for who I'm supposed to marry? What's God's will for the job I'm supposed to have or, or these decisions that I'm supposed to make? We have this, this kind of this idea of God's will out there that, that we need to figure out. And then if you're under 35, maybe that's not the right line of de demarcation. But in my experience, if you're under 35, if you don't get that clarity, you just want to sit there and wait for God to tell you what to do. And then you end up doing nothing. So a word specifically to those under 35 in this room and specifically the college students in this room where I've had lots of conversations about what this looks like. God has not asked us to sit and wait for 100% clarity on what he has for us in order to take the next step. He's not waiting or wanting you to just sit there in silent meditation until you get this lightning bolt moment or something in the clouds that tells you, here's exactly what you're supposed to do. If that's what you're waiting for, then you're going to have a hard time making decisions. What God wants from you is your faith. He wants you to take steps in the direction based on what he has revealed to you in his word and through his people and through his spirit within you. And so I've called this point, a living sacrifice sees the world the way that God sees it, because that's ultimately what is happening here. The Bible talks about God's will in two different ways. The first is his sovereign will. 
These are the things that are going to happen no matter what. And we're not always given insight into what those things are. The second way is God's revealed will. These are the things that he has given us in his word that we are commanded to obey, but they won't always come to pass because some people will choose to obey and some people will choose not to obey. And what Paul is saying here is that a transformed person with a renewed mind walks through life with the wisdom of God, knowing how to take our steps because God is constantly renewing us. Probably 95 or more percent of the decisions that we make in our life are not premeditated. We don't sit down and say, I wonder if I should cross this street or not. So we need God's wisdom to know how to move forward and how to make every next step. And the way that process happens is through the renewing of our minds. And that's what begins to happen to us as we surround ourselves with God's external truth and God changes us from the inside. Ultimately, it's that that we need to live in this world without being of this world. And a transformed person with a renewed mind begins having Jesus moments all throughout their days. A transformed person, when they come home and see that their roommate or their spouse didn't do the dishes again, doesn't blow a gasket, but takes a deep breath and washes them as an act of grace. A transformed person goes into the classroom or work each and every day and sees it as an assignment from God, that he has sent you to be around certain people to do certain things with a purpose. A transformed person with a renewed mind begins seeing all of the crazy things happening in the world through the news. And instead of just closing our ears and turning our back, and instead of shaking our fists at what's going on, we drop to our knees and we beg God to move because he's the only one that can. They begin seeing marriage as an opportunity to lay down our lives for the sake of our spouse because that's what Jesus did for us. And we stop seeing marriage as an opportunity for our spouse just to make us happy. We begin taking the right steps because we have been transformed with our minds renewed and we know what God would have us do each and every step. Not that we know that this decision will 100% be what God has for me, but we have enough faith in God and in his sovereign will that if we do make a mistake, he'll fix it. Because we're not strong enough to mess up his plan. He's just asked us to take the steps that he's put in front of us. And all of this is slow and imperfect because perfection is not the goal. If perfection was the goal, that would mean that perfection was possible, and that would mean that Jesus didn't have to die. So it's a slow and imperfect process, and we go through it fixing our eyes on Jesus. And this is, you heard Aaron read this at the beginning, but the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sun for the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice because Jesus did it first. 
And the results of Jesus offering himself as a living sacrifice were perfect. And so we can fix our eyes on him. We can fix our hope on him as we continue to move forward. And really, it's the only reasonable thing for us to do. And so with Paul, I challenge us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper and reasonable worship. Now, every single one of us in this room has at least one, probably a laundry list of things that we know that we have not given over to the Lord, that we don't want to give up control of, that we don't want to place on the altar. And we're about to approach the table in communion, and I'll explain what that is if you're not familiar here in a minute. But as we approach this moment, I want to invite you to ask God to search your heart and to call out just one thing that you have been unable or unwilling to give up control over and that you, in view of God's mercies, as you stare at what Jesus has done, that he would give you the strength to trust him with it and lay it down. So let me pray for us as we transition. God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done. And I pray that in these moments together that you would give us Grace, to stare at your mercy, to be so convinced over the things that you have done, to be so convinced that there's nothing that we can add to it. I'm aware in a room this size that our enemy, the devil, is probably trying to whisper lies to many of us saying, oh, this isn't for you. You're good. You're fully surrendered. Don't worry about it. So God, would you search our hearts? Would you give us grace to hear from you? Would you give us faith to lay these things at the altar so that we can show you how worthy you are and that we can pursue you as our greatest treasure? So God, do that work in us this morning as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.